Good morning, Midland Free. He did put that chair behind me, right? Okay, just making sure. You never, no? Okay. All right. Better check. That would not be good for my pride, but it would be good for my spirituality. Amen. Welcome here. My name is Jeremy. We're delighted that you have joined us to worship uh, today. We're super excited at our church, as Pastor Jeff said, to let his, God's glory uh, be our passion. And the way we're trying to do that this fall is we're walking through uh, a three-part topical sermon series. is isn't always my way, but this is the way for this fall. But uh, what it is, it's called Engage. And we begin with uh, engaging with God. And then after that, we will engage with our family. And after that, we'll engage with our finances. So today we're on number three of the first sermon series, Engage with God. We've had uh, two before that, and I'm pretty sure there's at least one person out here remembers what the first one was. We said from John 3.16 that God's love for us drives us, and therefore we called that? Yes, thank you. La passione. Very good. That was sermon number one. The, God's passion for us drives him to us. Uh, last week, I actually blew it a little bit. I meant to come back to it. It's one of those inclusio things, and I totally dropped the bottom piece. But uh, we started with the law of the jungle. If you remember, it was something like, let me see how to go. <clears throat> now, this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. The wolf who keeps it will prosper. The wolf who doesn't will die. Exactly. As the creeper that girdeth the tree trunk, the law runs forward and back. The, let's see here, how do I go? Um, huh? You, oh yeah, that's right, that's the important part. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Oh. <laughs> right? That's the way you do it? I started with that, and I meant to come back around, and I totally forgot, but this was the closer to the sermon, is that that's the law of the jungle, and the law of eternity is... Now, this is the law of eternity, older and truer than the sky. The person who believes it will live. The person who doesn't shall die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. Guilty as we are, there is an answer. Jesus, the only way back. Uh -huh. All right. All right. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> that was supposed to be last week. So now that you know what last week's sermon was... Um, to review the sermon for last week, monotheism requires a singular devotion. This is the law of the jungle or the law of eternity. Because there's one God, that God gets everything because it's all His. So one God gets everything. Love Him with your heart, soul, mind, spirit. There's no compartmentalization. No, this is politics and, and this is my religion and this is my family and this is my church. No, it's all His. One God, everything, it all belongs to him. Monotheism requires singular devotion. Because there's one God everywhere, all the time, all peoples, all colors, all everything, one God. So, engage with God, la passione, the law of the jungle. And today we'll find that the second great commandment is actually the Great Lake Loons. There you have it. It's true. For those of you who are watching online or in China or wherever else, the Great Lakes Loons is our local uh, Dodgers affiliate uh, minor league baseball team that 
we all love and cheer for here. I did not choose Michigan or Michigan State on purpose. I'm going with the Great Lakes Loons for the cause of unity and the love of Christ and his church. So we're going to use that as an illustration today. That'll be your image to bring back at some point. So today, we will say that we're, so we did John 3.16, Mark 12.28. Now today is the second half of Mark 12.28, which will be the second great commandment, or basically part B of the great commandment, the singular command. So the first part of the singular command was that we have a singular God, which requires singular devotion. The second part of the singular command flows directly out of the first and is inherently tied to it. So let's see what that is then in Mark 12, 28, same text we looked at last week. I'm actually only going to go through verse um, 31. This is Mark 12, 28 through 31. Jesus' answer to what is the greatest. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment of all those commandments we saw last week, which one is the most important? And Jesus said, here it is. Hear it. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O church. This is it. The most important here, O church, O Israel, is that the Lord, the Lord our God, is one. That's the great commandment. Flowing from that, you find that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. There's one God, give Him everything. And the second, which is inherently tied to it, and you cannot be separated from it, is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For there is no other commandment greater than these. So the first one is that the singular, the monotheism requires the singular devotion. One God, it's all His. Second one is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're like me, which you're probably not because there's only one me, <laughs> which really isn't a compliment, there just really is. If you're like me, or if you've ever thought like me, what you thought is, boy, I'm good with the first, not so sure about the second. <laughs> you know, it's just God and me, good. We get along great. I mean, He's perfect, he's loving, he's true, he's just, he's kind, he's forgiving, he's gracious, he's powerful, he's accepting. Wow, got to like something like that. And in fact, if there's something wrong in our relationship, I usually know where it lies, yea, always. <laughs> it's my fault, not his. So one God, love him, good. The tough part is that little second thing where it says, and your neighbor. And I'm like, oh. Got to be good if it's just you and me, you know? We could, like, go to an island or Alaska or wherever, and we could just live you and me all together, all for one, one for all. It'd be great. But as you look back, what you actually see is, even in the garden, it was never one man and God. Even then, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Even in the ultimate perfect place, it's not good for man to be alone. And so what you see is that loving God requires loving others. Now I'm going to walk you through that in two ways today. I'm going to give you two reasons for that. It's a little bit uh, tricky at first. You may not be clear as to why that is the case. 
But let me give you two reasons, and we'll flesh them out here in just a second. First is this, is that people represent God, or we represent Him. The reason that loving God requires loving other people is that we represent Him. That's one reason. The second is that Christians in particular, even beyond other people, but in particular, God's chosen people are united to Him, are one with Him, are actually in God. So the first is that we represent Him. The second is that we are united to Him. Let me explain what I mean in the first one. We represent God. Um, We're... Americans, sort of-ish, either first generation, second generation, third generation, whatever. But we sort of understand a representative government. That's a little bit what I'm talking about, but not exactly, because this predates democracy by a lot. And what this actually is, is this, is in that culture, in the ancient Near East, what kings would do is they would set up statutes that look like them throughout the land. So... You know, if you go to Rome, you'll see statues of Caesar, and as soon as the next Caesar comes in, what's he do? He knocks the head off the last guy. (laughs) And now all the statues are headless, right? Because you want your image to represent you. You're the boss, you're the king, you're God. And so, these demigods, or these rulers, would set up their statues on the perimeter of their property, or their territories, or their lands, So as soon as you're traveling, all of a sudden you go by one of these statutes, you're like, oh, I'm in a different spot now. Wonder who this land belongs to. Oh, look at that. I think it's him. Who is he? I don't know, but that looks sort of like him-ish, and I suppose I'll meet him at some point. And then as mediums of exchange or monetary things come into play, kings do the same thing. They put their face or their stamp, boom, on their coin. So you give to Caesar what's Caesar's, because it's Caesar's. (laughs) It's his. This is his territory. You can come here as long as you abide by his laws and you pay him homage and you give him what he wants. But if you don't, you are in trouble. And we want you to clearly understand that this area, this money, this territory, it all belongs to him. So now God is going to create people and to all the other creatures of the earth, to the animals that crawl to the birds that fly to everything the creeper that goes around the tree all of it he's going to say i want you to know whose spot this is i want you to know who rules over the entire creation i want you to know who this belongs to and i whenever you see this i want you to see him and then you will know who owns this place that is what god did with human beings So given that cultural context then, let's read Genesis 1, 26-28. It's on the slide. You, You don't even have to look at your Bibles. You're welcome to. But here it is in that context. This is what God says. It says, let us make human beings in our image. There's the image thing. To be like us. And they will reign over and list all the stuff. Fish, birds, livestock, wild animals. Verse 27 So, God created human beings in his own image. Human beings, plural. In the image of God, he created them both male and female. Not just male, but male and female. In other words, what we're saying is this. There's a slide here that sort of tells you what I'm trying to say. is that human beings are the part of creation 
that most resembles God. Out of everything else that's been made, these incredible mountains, these majestic volcanoes, the beautiful starry host, the powerful ocean, the dainty little flower, out of everything there is, human beings are more like God than anything else. They are the most beautiful, most wonderful, most spectacular part of all of creation. Now that is a fabulously high and phenomenal compliment. I don't know where you sit, but as I sit here thinking, whoa, that sort of blows my mind a little. Because there's a lot of beautiful stuff out there, but of all the things that God could have chosen to invest His image in, He chose to do so in humanity. That makes you, human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation. Thus, in this climactic sort of process, at the very end, he saves the best for last. And what does he make last? Women, right? Okay, that's a joke, right? Okay. But really, it's not good for man to be alone. And God saves the best for last. So at the pinnacle of his creation, the very greatest thing that he makes are human beings. And even to Adam, who is perfect, who is free from sin, who can walk with God, even at that point, he says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. We need more. Because I am a triune God. And to rightly represent who I am, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there has to be a plurality and there has to be unity. So I'm going to make something that looks just like that. It's called marriage. There should be one. There should be leadership. And there should be unity, and there should be love, and there should be harmony, with nothing in between. So let us make mankind, let us make them in our image. And God makes human beings. So what is it to be made in the image of God? Well, philosophers and theologians and all sorts of people argue about that a lot. And we can say, well, it's our rational ability, or it's our whatever ability, or it's our this, or it's our that. But the problem is, is anytime you define the image of God in terms of capability, you inevitably cut someone out. If it's rational, if it's their ability to reason, what about those who are mentally or physically handicapped? They're cut out. What about my father, who's in the end stages of Alzheimer's? He's cut out. He can't interact. He can't talk. He's laying in bed. He can't do anything for himself. Is he no longer human? Absolutely not. He's made in the image of God. And for some strange reason, unbeknownst to us, even at this phase, the image of God is there. Now, don't get me wrong. Anybody suffering that much, I can understand why certain people would say, hey, let's end the suffering. And this is horrible. No one wants to lay in a diaper in their own bed and get sick. Nobody wants that. And yet, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, God's image is still there. That's the end game. What about at the beginning? Well, this baby is going to struggle because this and that and this and that. It's made in the image of God. It's beautiful. Regardless of what we expect its capabilities to be, this human being is beautiful. From start to finish. And it is made in God's image. And therefore, anything that's an attack on that image, if you knock that head off, you've attacked the actual thing itself. An attack on the image is an attack on the thing. An attack on the image of God is an attack on God. 
Therefore, we don't euthanize and we don't abort because we believe human beings are made in the image of God. And that influences everything in between. So I've started the beginning phases and the end phases of life. Well, everything else too. Not only does it not depend on our capabilities, but it doesn't depend on our color or our intellect or our body size or our appearance or our connections or our position at work or whatever else we perceive to be important has no influence on the image of God whatsoever. That is unchangeable and inalienable. And that's really significant. Because you watch people that are all tied up in some other measure of their own value or worth, and it ebbs and flows depending on how they feel that day. Well, today I'm around a bunch of people that are larger than me, therefore I feel skinny. Well, tomorrow I'm around people who are skinnier than me, therefore I feel large. My self-esteem, my self-worth just goes up and down, up and down. Tomorrow the people I'm around are smarter than me. Today I want to hang out with people who are less smart. makes me feel good. It doesn't work. You're always going to be around different people and you're measuring yourself against them. You're just going to go like this and like this and you're going to be a mess. But the reality is you don't measure yourself against anybody else. You take what the Bible says and you believe it by faith that you are made in the image of God no matter what. The end. Kaput. So the magazine, the sports, the money, the whatever, they're all wrong. You're made in the image of God. Done. You don't have to do anything else, and you can't do anything else to improve that. Only human beings are made in the image of God. For whatever reason, God in his infinite wisdom chose us to represent him. Now, here's where the Great Lakes loons come in. What's one of the greatest things about going to a ball game? The chance to catch a fly ball, right? There, you just got a fly ball. I'll sign it for you afterwards. Not really. (laughs) Oh, boy. Is that page two or page one? I might need that back. (laughs) Just kidding. Look, Great Lakes Loons, it's our team, right? So let's pretend you are a Loons fan. Let's just pretend. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. That's right, you got it. You know where I'm going. Um, If you go to a Loons game, and you're a Loons fan, who's their mascot? Louie, exactly right. So you see Louie, what are you going to do? Hey, Louie, over here, come here, Louie. Yeah, man, whoa, right on, there's Louie. Let's go run over the kid's zone and get his autograph, right? That's Louie, he's awesome, it's Louie. You know, he's going to... Do his thing, whatever that is. Steal my popcorn and kiss my wife. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not so sure about that Louie anymore. There's Louie. There he is. And not only that, but if the Great Lakes loons hit a home run, what are you going to do? Hey, kids, what are you going to do if the Great Lakes loons hit a home run? Right? That's what we're doing because we love the loons. We're cheering for them. We're all about the loons. In fact... If you're that crazy about the loons, you may even buy um, season tickets and be sitting like in the front row because you want to watch every call and yell at the umpire when he doesn't do it exactly the way you think he should. Every pitch a loon's pitcher throws is a strike and the other team a ball. That's just the way it is. Because we're fans. We're fanatics. We're not just fans, but we are all in 100% loons. We're crazy about these loons. 
We want their autographs. We follow them. We learn about the players. We get to know their inside scoop. We might even let them stay in our home because we are all about the Great Lakes Loons. We come rain or shine. We don't care because we love this team. It's all about la passione, right? We love the Great Lakes Loons. Well, the thing is, if you are a Loons fan, then you love everything about the Loons. You love their jerseys, you love their gear, you love their hats. The other day I was at Kohl's and there's an entire family buying Michigan State stuff. I mean, the whole family. I'm in like the men's changing room and there's mom and daughter and sons. They're all going to Michigan State. Why? Because they love Michigan State. They're all about it. They're going green. Because if you love the thing, then you love everything that represents it. So too church with us and God. If we say we love God, commandment one, then that means we love him and everything about him. That means we see Jesus and we're like, ah, there's Jesus. Whoa, over here, sign my arm, Jesus. You know, like, this is great. There he is. Let's run to meet him because we're so excited. He represents God perfectly. But there's something else that represents God here on earth when Jesus is not here, and that's the church. And that's us. We're the jersey. We're the color. We're the team. And so if you're really passionate, guess what? I think you've got front row tickets and you're sitting in the front seat, rain or shine. You're here every week because when it's his time for the game, you're like, yeah, let's go. We're all in because this is our team. So much so that you know all the players on the team. You know their batting averages. You know what they struggle with. You know where they need help. And you care about them. And you love them. And you're ready to cheer. And when they strike out, you cheer all the harder because you want them to get up to bat again and do it all over. Is that your team? Yeah, everybody strikes out once in a while. You know that. 300, that's 30% of the time. You want your doctor to get it right 30% of the time? you cheer for them like crazy could you cheer for your church if we got it right 30 percent of the time do you expect us to be perfect we're not i'm going to preach sermons i can't do if i'm accurate to the word of god i will i'll fail but we love you and you're our team and so we don't care and we're going to cheer and we're going to yell and we're going to scream and we're going to get stinky because this is us all the way Go loons. Go Jesus. Amen? Amen? Love the church. If you love him, you love everything about him. Loving God means we love people, and particularly the people of God. Why? Well, first of all, all people represent God. All people do. But Christians in particular, in a very special way, represent God. Here's what Jesus says. You know, a lot of times we think that um, Jesus were still on earth, it'd be so much easier. Man, if Jesus just walked alongside me, I could like walk on water and stuff like all those other guys. That'd be cool. The reality is, Jesus says, it's better if I go away. Jesus himself said, you're in a better spot than the disciples. (laughs) Do you believe that? Do you believe that your faith is more empowered than Peter, Paul, James, that's what Jesus said. You have the Holy Spirit, not outside of you, but inside of you. You have the greatest power in all of eternity, 
living in you, alive. How is that? Well, Jesus says it like this. John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, not me, but another one, to be with you forever. How can he be with me forever? Well, he's like part of me. It's like a tattoo. doesn't go away. He's a stamp, a mark, a seal. He is on you permanently, and he can't be removed. He's with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Now, I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, I thought you said you're leaving. How is it you're going to come to me? Well, because I and the Father and the Spirit are one. One God, three persons. So I will come to you, the Spirit, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, even though you don't see me. Huh? Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. It's this crazy, cyclical, Trinitarian thing that's represented nowhere else on earth. Not the egg, not the clover, not the whatever, tricycle, that's all wrong. It's the Trinity, and the Trinity is one God, three persons. Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Father's not the Son, Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. But they're all God. One what? Three who's. One God, three persons. The Trinity, united perfectly in harmony, unity, and love. Now, what happens then to us is, if one member of that Trinity jumps inside of us, which is the Holy Spirit, boom, we're in the Spirit. Well, where's the Spirit? In Christ. Where's Christ? In the Father. So we're in the Trinity? Well, kind of. We're not gods, but we are possessed by one who is one with him, and therefore we are in him. And that's why Paul, through the whole New Testament, says, I'm in him. What do you mean you're in him? No, I actually am. Spirit's in me, and therefore I'm in him. It's not that my heart is his home, but his heart is my home. Do you see? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And no one can snatch you out of my hand. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Therefore, you are so secure. You are unbelievably, unshakably, unstoppably, permanently in me. That's a good spot to be. I think I'd like to stay there. <laughs> I like that. But what happens? It's like soup and not like salad. Okay, say you order a salad at the restaurant and you forget, oh, I hate blueberries. <laughs> you know, whoa, it's got blueberries. I'm just pretending. If you're in Michigan, you have to like blueberries, but let's pretend. So you pick off the blueberries because it's salad and you can do that. You just take them off and set them to the side, no problem. Salad's a lot of different pieces. But what if it's soup? There's like garlic in it. <laughs> I can't like take it out of the goo, right? Because it's one. It's like there. I mean, it's different ingredients, but it's one. And what God is saying is this. You cannot be selective about that which is inseparable. You cannot be selective 
about that which is inseparable. I just told you you're inseparable from God. If you're a believer in Him, you can't be torn away. So how can I, some silly little human being who has no power whatsoever, say, oh, I think I will rip you out of God's hand while I'm loving Him. I'm going to choose not to love you. (laughs) You can't do that. No one can snatch you out of His hand. It's inseparable. You are in Him. You're secure. And if I say that I'm loving God and you are in Him, that means by necessity, by default, I absolutely must love you too. If I don't, I'm trying to separate that which can't be separated. That doesn't make sense. It's soup, not a salad. I can't pick out this person and keep that one and pick out this one and keep that one. No, no, no. It's all mixed. Once you are in Christ, you are in Him. You're in the Trinity. You're in, you're in God. You're secure. And if I say then that I love God, that means by necessity I have to love you because you're in Him. So what am I saying to you? I'm, I'm trying to say this. Look, there are two great commands, and they all stem from the same thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. Because there is one God over everything, it's all His, then everything you have and everything you are all belong to Him. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit, your politics, your money, your wallet, your effort, your abilities, your family, your home, everything. All His. And, because there is one God, anybody who's united to Him, you got to love them too. Because they're all His. People who are made in His image, and especially people who are in Him. Hear, O church, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love Him with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is just like it and flows from it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. Now, in the last 10 minutes, let me give you some specific ways to love your neighbor. I'm going to be honest about it, right? It's hard. It's not easy. It's one thing to love God. It's another thing to love people, especially the church. And I work here, right? I'd like to keep working here, so I'll be careful what I say. (laughs) But sometimes the church has been compared to Noah's Ark. And the deal is this, is, you know, the stench on the inside would be unbearable were it not for the alternative on the outside. (laughs) Animals stink, sheep bite, we all get dirty 30% of the time. That's pretty good, actually. The rest of the time, what's that mean? We're sinning and hurting each other. So what do we got to do? Forgive. Forgive. I would say to you that perhaps because we are sinful... That perhaps, 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 just maybe, the greatest way to love another human being is to forgive them. By nature, by default, as a result of the fall from Adam, we get it honestly, we sin. So the best thing you can offer somebody else is forgiveness. Let me give you three ways to love people. I'm going to hone in on forgiveness for a while, and then we'll see what we have left. But they are these. Number one is to forgive Number two is to encourage. And number three is via your local church or get connected to your local church. Three very specific ways to keep this command to love God by loving people is this. Number one, forgive, just like Christ forgave you. Number two, to encourage, just like the Holy Spirit 
encourages you. And number three, to be connected to to the local church. So let's talk about the first one then, which is forgiveness. This is essential for me, who is a sinner and needs your forgiveness. And this is essential for you, who is a sinner as well. There are probably four things that are really important if, if, if you have an ongoing relationship to work through. And let me say this. I'll address in just a second those people you're not even talking to. Because I recognize it's one thing to say, okay, I can interact with this person and we can talk and we can work things out because we have a good relationship. But there may also be those people that I can't even talk to them. <laughs> we can't even be in the same room. As soon as I open my mouth, it's... What just happened there? How do I work it out? Here are some ways. So let's begin with those that you're first able to talk to. And it's this. There are four things, I think, that can be helpful if you want to reconcile or if you want to work through some things or achieve forgiveness in a relationship. And they are these. I'll just say them and then I'll go through them. Number one is timing. Number one is timing. Number two is a compliment, like give a compliment. Number three is a question. And number four is permission. So timing, compliment, and question. Or sorry, timing, compliment, question, and permission. So let's talk about timing first. I'm a guy, so I'll just give it to you from my perspective, and you can translate it however. But look, if, if you just get home from work, and you're tired and grumpy, and you had a difficult conversation, it's been a long day, a long week, now it's not the time. <laughs> Now is not the right time. There are times that we're able to think and we're able to process and we're able to hear and we're able to internally go through it, but sometimes are better than others. <laughs> and so if you want to interact with your spouse or whoever, find the right time. Number one, find the right time. Are they in a good mood? It's a simpler way to say it. If they're all grumpy, you're probably not going to get very far. If they're upset because their Lego broke, you're not going to work through the issues they're having with their brother. <laughs> you know, it's not going to work. Find the right time. Number one, are they in a good mood? If they're in a good mood, this is a good time. Number two, a compliment. What is something you can give? Is there anything whatsoever? Reach for the moon, grasp at straws, whatever you got to do, but find something in them you can affirm. Start with affirmation. Not so you can pull the rug out from under them in just a minute, but genuine things that you really appreciate. I noticed this. I've always admired you for. I'm really appreciative of you when. I respect this about you. Start with affirmation. Give a compliment. Make it genuine, not silly. It doesn't count if it's silly. For real. Compliment. Number three, ask a question. And the question you ask, let's be very careful here. This is an appropriate time for you to giggle if you're a giggler. Okay, you don't start with, why did you do something so dumb? (laughs) What kind of buffoonery move was that? (laughs) You know, I have no idea why you, that's not your question. The question should not be on them, but on you. Begin with the question that begins with you. Begin with the question that begins with you. So in other words, you're going to say something like, what is something that I can do to help prevent this situation? 
And you're thinking in the back of your mind, because I really don't like it when this happens. <laughs> it makes me so mad or it hurts my feelings. Or, But the bottom line is you can't control that other person. So if there's anything you can do whatsoever, wouldn't you want to try? What is something I can do? All right. We'll talk about you whenever it's right. But let's start with me. What's something I can do to prevent this situation? And you may give me more than I bargained for, and you may not. But if there's anything in there that I can sift through and pull out, then I'm going to grab it. What is something I can do to help prevent this? And number four, after you've asked that question, so the question's on you, you're going to ask permission to talk about that other thing. Because you probably do need to talk about it. And you can't expect them to read your mind. They don't know your heart. Only God is omniscient. And so if you hold it back until you explode, then that's really on you. You need to get to the point where you're able to talk about it in a reasonable way. And I know that's tough. But you try. Because even if it ruins that night, or if it ruins that week, or it ruins that day, it's worth ruining the night, the day, the week, so you don't ruin your life. Or your week, or your year, or your month, or whatever. Ruin a little to save a lot. Try it. And so you start with the question and you say, may I have your permission, you're asking permission, to speak about this. May I have your permission? If the answer is no, end a conversation because you already know you're not getting anywhere and pushing forward is not going to help. You have to wait till they give you permission to speak into it. Otherwise, you're stuck. So you're asking for an open door. You're asking for a threshold. You're saying, may I please have your permission? Would you grant me the favor? I need this. You may not feel like you need it, but I need it for my well-being, my heart, my life, my soul. May I have permission to speak about this? And if so, there you go. And it's possible that up until this point, even going through those things, the timing, the compliment, the question, you may have already got there. A lot of times you'll find you do. You may say, I'm, I admit, you start with yourself. I admit this about myself. I affirm this about you. And then they're like, well, yeah, and I probably had my part in it too. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Go, well, tell me more, <laughs> you know. But sometimes it comes out. Sometimes you don't even have to address it because once you open the door, things are rolling and you're good and you don't even have to say anything. God's spirit does his work and that person feels it and you're good. Great. Maybe you can head it off before you even get there. But if it doesn't, you ask permission. So those are the four things on the forgiveness piece. Timing, compliment, question, and permission. Now, what if that doesn't work? They're not talking to you. They're not giving you permission. Then you attack. You're laughing. I'm actually serious, let me tell you. You go on the offensive, like more aggressive than you ever have. I'm talking full out frontal assault, the most strong, impressive, offensive weapon you have. Forgive. The most effective weapon you have is to forgive. But Pastor Jeremy, I'm a man. I know. I think I am too. I'm pretty sure. But if I attack, let me tell you, it's a lot easier to hit back. 
it is so much easier to fight than to forgive. It really is. It doesn't take any skill at all to swing back. That, I mean, that's just natural. That comes without even thinking about it. Someone comes, <laughs> I might be very good, but I'm swinging. You know? That's nature. That's sin. That's the way we are. It takes double the man not to fight back. And it's twice as hard to forgive than to attack. Why is that? Well, think about it. Think about trench warfare, for example. You've got two different sides. They're entrenched in their position. Nobody's coming out. Right? And by now, we know exactly where you stand. We've got you dialed in. We know your exact coordinates. We can lob stuff over anytime we want. And as soon as you pop your head out of that hole, pow, <laughs> you're going to get it. And so if all of a sudden you get the bright idea one day, I'm going on the offensive, what's going to happen? Mud and dirt and all kinds of slop is going to start flying at you. But if you get up out of your position and you go over to theirs and you address them, you're on the offensive. You're taking the aggressive approach. You're taking the high ground, which they thought they held, but in reality they didn't realize they were just dug into a pit. Even though they surrounded themselves with all kinds of defenses and all kinds of whatever, and they're just waiting for you to pop up, you risk your life. You risk it. It's dangerous. It's scary. Forgiveness is not easy. It's hard. And man, when you get up the courage to get out of that pit and go, you know something's going to hit you along the way, and you're going to trip, and you're going to stumble, and you're going to fall, but at the end of the day, you're hoping to make it over that line. And you've got to will it. You've got to say, I'm going in here to forgive and I don't care what they throw at me along the way here we come boom does that sound weak I don't think so that's aggressive that is proactive that's on the attack that's not somebody standing back saying "Ooh, I couldn't win so I guess I'll just forgive no way say man we are surrounded we have no choice and we got to take out that devil there's only one way we're going to do it, and that's if we forgive. You guys with me? Here we go. <clears throat> Attack. Forgive. Forgiveness is the most effective offensive weapon you have. Forgive. So if we love God, we love people. We pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For Forgive us our... That's as we forgive our debtors. That's the hard part. I like the kingdom. <laughs> I like the daily bread. <laughs> uh, forgiveness. Whew. Not easy. That's when you know you're for real. For greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friend. When you go to forgive, you might have to. It might cost you a lot. Forgive, as Jesus forgave you. Oh, he went to the cross. Maybe that's too high. Well, Cory ten Boone, Nazi, abusers, starved her sister to death, made them prayed before them naked. Yeah, that's, okay, that's a little too high. I mean, take your pick. I know it's hard, but it actually works. There's all kinds of examples down through Christian history Jesus, the apostles, faithful followers after that, the aggressive, assertive, proactive, confrontational way is to forgive. It's actually to forgive. Take the offensive and forgive. 
Three ways to love people. Forgive. The other two are encourage and get connected, but I'm out of time. You know how to encourage. Pretty simple. Uh, encourage. There's a million and one different ways you could do it. Hey, how's it going? Love you. Praying for you. Bye. Click, text, and done. Dear God, please help. You don't have to pray like a pastor or a theologian. You just say, dear God, please help. And then send them a note and say, I'm praying for you. You don't know about the timing, but it could be significant. You don't have to be highly skilled. You eat, right? Everybody eats? You can eat with somebody. <laughs> Doesn't take any special skills. You can eat. So encourage, pray, forgive. Next week, uh, we will have a featured Sunday where we look at one of our ministries called Go Local. And this is a great way to get connected and service in your church. And you'll have all sorts of opportunities uh, displayed throughout our building. And people who lead those ministries will explain more. But there's all kinds of ways for you to get plugged in. Look, if you're part of the team, you need to know the players. And you need to know what their needs are. And you be, better be willing to support and cheer and yell and scream. Because you're a fanatic. You're a fan. If you love God, you love His people. And you are all, all in. So, hero Israel, hero church. The Lord, the Lord our God is one. And because he's one, it's soup and not a salad. You can't separate out one piece from another. You can't do that in your own life. It all belongs to him. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your money, your relationships, your emotions, your mind, everything belongs to him. And you can't do that in your relationship in church. Because if you love God, then you love by nature everything that he is about and those who are in him. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. For there's no other commandment greater than these.